Please rise for the hearing of God's word. Our reading today comes from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 35. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So after he had taken the morsel, I'm sorry, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said to him, Now the Son of Man glorified, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is God's word. Uh, we, for Advent, we are back into the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been uh, in John from Christmas to Easter the last couple of years. Uh, we'll be so we're kind of jumping back in here at the upper room discourse, which is this pretty sizable chunk of John from chapters thirteen to seventeen, and there's some really profound things Jesus has to say to his disciples, uh, and certainly what he has to say this morning to us is uh, at the top of the list. So let's pray, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. And though it often, uh, especially for those of us who are used to it and have read these stories many times, Lord, it often feels like it goes in one ear and out the other. And yet, and yet, the more we are in your word, Lord, the more powerful it becomes in shaping our hearts and our minds. And we pray this morning as we reflect on it, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would work powerfully, that we would learn what it is uh, to love one another. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We, 
think we know what love is, but we often have a lot to learn about it, don't we? When you're young, it seems so simple. Uh, just think about your friends, right? I mean, we should, you think, boy, it's, it should be easy, right? We just care about each other. We show concern for one another, and this is, this is how it goes. And yet, you know, many have found over the years that friendship is not so easy as it always seems, is it? Uh, what, the situations that come down the road, the, uh, the challenges you face are not always so simple. Uh, you think about dealing within your family, the people you love that you know the closest, that have you know, known you since you were a kid. Uh, not always easy. Uh, romance is actually the, the, one of the ways this is so obvious, right? Because we do, and I mean, how many songs are there about love? And how simple and easy it is. I mean, recently I, I heard uh, Van Halen's song, When It's Love. And if you're not a child of the 80s, maybe this song doesn't stand out to you. It is a great rock and roll song, and it might be some of the dumbest lyrics ever written. Uh, they get to the verse, and, you know, the whole band sings out. I won't sing it for you. How do you know when it's love? Sammy Hagar answers, I can't tell you, but it lasts forever. The band, how does it feel when it's love? Sammy, it's just something you feel together. Thanks, guys. Thanks for helping us out. Um, <laughs> one doesn't listen to Van Halen for nuggets of wisdom, I don't think. But the, uh, just great guitar solos. That's it. The, um, the point is, we think we know what love is, and it's so much more difficult than we really appreciate. And Jesus is putting his finger on it right now, that love is often challenging. And even in circumstances that are going pretty well, it's rarely balanced terms of the need of some and the giving that's required of others. There's so much more to it than we think. And Jesus yet, I think, unpacks it for us in two ways. Love is a commandment and it's a calling. A commandment and a calling. The commandment bit is what he's teaching them, and it really is the start proper of the, the discourse, the upper room discourse. Uh, is in verse 31. Uh, now, Jesus has set an example that we looked at this last week of washing their feet to start the meal, but the actual conversation really kind of gets going with verse 31, and Jesus starts it off by saying, now is, is the Son of Man glorified. And what he means, and John has done this a few times, or, well, Jesus has said this a few times in the Gospel of John, that his crucifixion is his, his glorification. He is going to be glorified on the cross, which is counterintuitive to say the least. That doesn't really make any sense. Certainly not to his disciples. They can't make heads or tails about the cross when he's been talking about it on his way to Jerusalem. But it gets to the counterintuitiveness of the cross itself, right? Calvin puts it this way. He says, it was a paradox that the glory of the Son of Man arose from a death 
humanly ignominious, and even a curse before God. For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The incomparable goodness of God is on display in the cross. That's why Jesus just talks about it as his glorifying. The moment he's glorified, because to glorify something means to celebrate what is beautiful and worthwhile about it. And that's why he starts to talk about the glorifying that he gives to the Father and the glorifying the Father shares with him. Because what Jesus is about to accomplish on the cross is to put the whole heart of God on display. We, we tend to think about being glorified as that, that term suggests, actually, that, that you're putting and on an outward display. It's putting on your best. It's putting on a big show. And yet, what's going to happen on the cross is God's goodness on display in a way that we could never have guessed. And that is why the Father will glorify Him. That's why it glorifies the Father that he goes to the cross. Because we are seeing the heart of the Father. We are seeing the love of the Son for us. And that theme is going to carry on throughout the whole upper discourse, kind of on and off. We're going to keep hearing about the Father and the Son that way. But Jesus, from the get-go, is putting his finger on the cross. That is what he came for, and that is where God himself will be glorified. And so he starts talking about, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot come. He had already mentioned, he had already said that before, which is why it's, you know, he's saying, this is why I said it. But he said it back in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. Um, but he's, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm heading out of town. <laughs> he'll, he'll go on in later, later weeks, as we're going, working our way through this upper room discourse, to talk about why that's even better that he does that. But for the time being, he's saying, I'm, I'm heading out, and I'm leaving you with this new command to love one another. Verse 34. To love one another. Uh, D.A. Carson, another commentator, says, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate but profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. It is a profound commandment. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. Now, that idea of love as a fulfillment of the commandment is not anything particularly new. Uh, Maybe you remember in Matthew 22 or Mark 12 or Luke 10, Jesus talks about being, about what what the first commandment is, right? He's asked that by a couple times. And what does he say? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. The first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. From Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. 
So the idea that love is the fulfillment of the commands is not itself anything new. What is new is the reason. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Not that God wasn't loving in the Old Testament. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> it's not that God wasn't loving. But God had not yet showed them the full extent of his love. He had not been glorified on the cross. And that is why it is the evidence of God's work. In verse 35, he tells us that the love that we have for one another is a sign to the world. It is evidence of the truth of the gospel that we love one another. Now, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to talk about this without talking about how costly love really is. I mean, love is costly. Uh, it's costly financially. Uh, <laughs> uh, those of you who have had children know that it is costly financially. Um, I mean, really, to express love to somebody, right? You, I mean, part of what you do, right, is you spend some money <laughs> to show them that in different ways. Not that you have to do that, right? But it's costly. That way. The more important things, though, are it's costly in your time and in your energy, in your attention. And that's where it's most, that's, you know, most costly. Money is come and go, right? But it's your heart where it's the most costly. When Jesus is talking about loving as he has loved us, he is not simply talking about, well, do what you can. That doesn't uh, quite cut it, does it? That doesn't quite seem like the love of the one who laid down their life for us. Especially as we think about what it means to love one another, and it's clear that he's speaking to the disciples and, you know, to the disciples as representing his people, that this is a message to the church. Our calling is to love one another. And that's hard. <laughs> when you think about the life of the church, right, it might be hard because you have long-standing relationships with people people you've known for years, and you know a lot of their foibles. And maybe you've had your own little spats along the way. Maybe you've had your own differences. To love them is costly. And, you know, it, some of you have seen the beauty of that over time. Uh, some of you have struggled with that over time. Maybe some of you have had a little bit of both. <laughs> There's also a kind of love that the church is called to that is welcoming. That is to invite 
others in, to care for those who are new. And that is a sacrifice of a different kind, isn't it? It's a, you may not have the background, but you are reaching out, offering your time and your care and your attention to someone you don't know. But who knows Jesus? The key to understanding this commandment and what is so profound is to reflect on why Jesus says we do it, as I have loved you. You know, last summer we went through the book of Galatians, and what does, you know, what does Paul say about himself? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Uh, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a high calling to love like that. Not that you can die in somebody else's place, but to love as you have been loved. It's a challenge, <laughs> to say the least, isn't it? I wonder if we've thought about that, or when the last time you thought about that was, when it comes to the church in particular. How are you loving others? Those that you've known for a long time and those that you haven't. It is the evidence of God's love for us. In some ways, that might be, we can get our head around a challenging commandment (laughs) that we maybe that we don't know know how to completely fulfill because uh, every commandment is basically that way at some level. But when he says that this is how (laughs) all people will know that you're my disciples, I mean, that's kind of scary, actually. Again, especially if you've been in the church before. Because the church is very imperfect. There's never a church that's ever lived this commandment out perfectly, that's for sure. Um, and yet, that's the proof. And this is, this is such a profound and important lesson, too, in terms of how Christians think about what we're doing when we share the gospel with others. Because there's many Christians that think, I'm supposed to engage the ideas of other people, deconstruct all of them, and then, of course, they're going to come to faith. I'm going to disprove. Now, I mean, there's a place, of course, for engaging questions seriously. But that way of thinking is faulty for at least two reasons. One, there are other options out there. You may deconstruct what they believe and even be convincing in it. That doesn't mean they're going to become a Christian. Maybe they'll become a Buddhist. Maybe they'll go after some other religion. That doesn't get them there. More than than that, how will they believe what they have not been shared? I mean, it is, it is no longer a luxury to think that people have any grasp of the gospel who are not in the church. 
And it's not their fault. <laughs> That's our fault. There used to be a time where we could kind of trust in America that, a lot, that most people had a church background and sort of knew the basics. And that day has long gone. No, what Jesus says, Jesus apologetic, if you will, is the love of the church. In other words, it is the compelling beauty and power of that love in the church that proves that the message is true, the changed lives and hearts here, the willingness to be sacrificial for one another. In other words, it's not simply about showing people that what they believe is inadequate. It's about putting before them something that's so compelling that they'd want it to be true. That's the power of this commandment. (laughs) So it's a commandment, right? But it's also a calling. And this, I think, is made clear in the first half of this passage. See, the disciples, they've, they've had their feet washed by Jesus. It's been, you know, and there was Peter, of course, you know, did his thing uh, there where he initially asked a good question and then put his foot in his mouth later. But, the, uh, but as they're sitting there, Jesus starts to share with them that someone is going to betray him. Uh, This is a theme in all of the Gospels as you get to the end, that Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. And more than that, he knows it's going to be Judas. And he's troubled about it. He shares it with them because he is concerned for them. And actually, that's so important as we get into and start to get into the meat of this upper room discourse. The whole thing is fueled by Jesus' concern for his disciples, that they be prepared It doesn't mean they're going to understand everything that evening or even the next day when Jesus is on the cross. But that with time, they will. And so that that whole theme of Jesus' concern is there. So Jesus has told them, somebody's going to betray me. And of course, you know, Peter can't help but wonder, who's it going to be? And so the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the, by the end of John, it makes it, he makes it clear that he's talking about himself. This is a way of sort of distancing himself from the, as author from the narrative, I think, which is what's going on. But whatever the case is, this is John. And, uh, and Peter, John's sitting next to Jesus, so Peter starts, you know, signaling like, psst, John, ask him who. Ask him who it's going to be. As if, if Jesus didn't want to be clear, he wouldn't be, you know, but, but uh, you know, John, so, you know, John leans back and asks him, and what does Jesus do? Jesus tells them exactly who it's going to be. Right? The person I dip, that I hand this dipped bread to is the person, and he dips it and he hands it to Judas, and he tells him to go do what he does. And the disciples still don't get it. I mean, this is, this is just one of these moments. It, a little note aside about the authenticity of, of the Gospels. Why on earth would these disciples write about their own stupidity so much? 
That wasn't, in fact, the case. Anyway. They don't get it. And so here's the deal. Jesus, all along the way to Jerusalem, has been telling them, look, when we get to Jerusalem, uh, I'm going to be handed over, crucified, and I'll rise in three days. He's told them that at least three times along the way. And they don't get it. Peter, the first time, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for it. He tells Peter to, he calls Peter Satan. Get behind me. They don't get it. They don't seem to understand. Now, I mean, obviously they haven't understood various things that Jesus has taught along the way. So it's not exactly new territory. But even when Jesus is clear as can be with them, they don't always get it. It's like those are the moments like, oh, he, he must mean that as some kind of parable, you know. He's always telling parables. Must be something like that. And so, too, he's ta- he, 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 he says, you know, whoever I give this bread to is the one. He hands it to Judas, and they don't get it. They're like, well, clearly it's not Judas. Which also, by the way, says something about Judas, doesn't it? Because I, I think, I think when, you, when I was younger, I thought of Judas like he was, like, sitting over in the corner, sort of wringing his hands, you know, kind of cackling to himself a little bit under his breath. And it's like everybody would know this is the bad guy. But it appears that actually the opposite is true. Right? Jesus says, whoever I give this bread to is the one who's going to betray me. Here you go, Judas. Go do what you need to do. And everybody's like, well, you know, it wouldn't be Judas. So clearly it's actually not the case, right? I mean, there, in other words, all of this is to say they're operating from a set of default assumptions, Right? assumptions about what the Messiah ought to do and be, and that's why they cannot understand why Jesus is talking about a cross and going to the cross. Assumptions about one another, well, it clearly can't be Judas, who's the betrayer. Not that guy, right? I mean, we entrusted him with the money anyway, so it can't be that guy. And yet, so many of their assumptions are wrong. And here's the thing, along the way, Jesus has treated Judas like one of his own. He has presumably just washed Judas's feet, knowing what Judas would do. I mean, that's a, you know, that's you know, that's a dramatic moment, isn't it, right? Jesus' feet being washed, Judas knowing what he's thinking about doing, and Jesus knowing what Judas is thinking about doing, you know. And Jesus still treats him with love. It's like Jesus meant what he said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So so that you would bear the family likeness. Jesus even loves his enemies. In fact, I mean, that's true of everyone, isn't it? Because while we were still in sin, while we were still 
against God. He sent his son. That is the love of God. And that's why it is more than simply a commandment. And maybe this is somewhat semantic, but it's important to see because certainly Jesus doesn't mean the commandment to be a mere commandment. But in how we tend to think about it, when we think of a commandment, we think, well, what are the boundaries? Right? How do I, who's in and who's out? Okay, it's a big commandment. So where's the fence? Who's one of us? And who's not? So that I don't have to worry about them. But Jesus is describing that and showing that kind of love for even his enemy. For even the one who's going to betray him. Jesus' love is a kind of calling. You see, I say it's a calling, meaning it is a settled and focused conviction that directs the whole of his life. Jesus loved us and gave his life for us. And so this new commandment is not just simply a thing that you think about in isolation. Is this a moment that I'm called upon to love somebody? No, loving others as Christ has loved us is our calling. It is the thing that makes sense of our whole life. I'm not simply called to love people at certain times. I'm not called to love, you know, when there's a need, when something comes up. I'm called to love all the time. It's a calling. It is an abiding focus. It isn't something, of course, that any of us are going to master. This side of eternity, let's be clear about that. But it does describe the goal, the end point that we know we're heading toward, the thing that is growing within us. And we can think of all the different ways in which the idea of love is so central in all the practical teaching of the New Testament. But we have this simple phrase from Jesus, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So as we experience the love of God in Jesus, we experience the love of the Father for us. We experience the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Spirit. And because He loves us and gave His life for us, we live by faith in Him. It is so simple. And yet it is so profoundly difficult. But it is not our work. It is the work of Jesus in us by the power of His Spirit. So just as Jesus has loved us, Let's love one another. Father, we thank you that everything we're called to as 
believers is so easily summarized. And yet, Lord, even as we know uh, how simple a thing it is, we know that it is so difficult to do. Father, as we come to this meal, would you remind us of the love of Jesus, the extent to which he would go, the height and depth of his love and your grace. Father, would we be reminded that we love not because we have it in us, but because you have first loved us. Feed us by this meal, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.